Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Earlier this week, we had the Yale historian Tim Schneider on the show to talk about his new book, Our Malady. I think in broad terms, what Schneider and so many other guests we've had on the show this summer have suggested is that the core malady in the world is information, news, uh, the crisis of truth. Uh, and it's a crisis, of course, most of all of journalism, how to produce not only good journalism, but good journalists. One of the best journalists around, at least on television, is Clarissa Ward. She's CNN's chief international correspondent. Everyone will have seen her on television. And she has a new book out, a rather confessional book, On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. Clarissa, you didn't go to J school. You learned journalism on the job. What should the education of a good journalist be? Well, I think every journalist really needs to start out in the newsroom because the newsroom is the beating heart of any news organization. And it's where you really learn and understand the process by which information is aggregated, verified, ingested, and then disseminated and shared to a wider audience. And that's a really crucial process for any journalist to understand, particularly as we are in this sort of quasi-dystopian post-truth era at the moment. And I think this is the best way for a journalist to get an education of what the facts are. And obviously it starts with the reporters on the ground, but the people who work on the desk as well, who are consuming all that information and then passing it on, play a vital role. So I always tell young people, start out in the newsroom, learn how the factory works. And then once you have a sound idea of that process, try to get out into the field and see how being a journalist in the real world works. But it's more than just facts, Clarissa, isn't it? What your book suggests that, it, that journalism, or at least your type of journalism, the journalism that you admire, the journalism that you aspire to is about people. There's a wonderful moment in the book where uh, Austin uh, Tice, who, of course, uh, is, a, is a rather tragic figure. I don't think he's around anymore, was, was murdered by ISIS. He asked no, he's, to, he's not been murdered. He's, he was kidnapped by the regime. Right. Sorry, so, just... so, so we don't know where. Anyway, he, yeah. he, you, you were very close to him, even though you never met. And he asked you at one point, I guess, over email or text, he says, what's the juice for you, Clarissa? Mm. I liked how mm. he put it. So what's your juice, Clarissa, when it comes to journalism? You know, I think, funnily enough, you almost had to... I had to sort of write the book uh, to really understand what the juice is. And then it was so very clear to me, and you alluded to it just now, it's human connection. It's being able to travel to the far, most far-flung corners of the earth, wherever they may be, however different the culture may be, and find and meet people and tell their stories and have these moments with them. 
And these moments, most often, they don't make it onto the evening news, right? These are small moments of kindness, a, a shared joke, a shared meal, uh, or cruelty or tears. It, it's not necessarily a positive moment, but they are the moments that shape the way we see the world. They shape the way we understand different conflicts, and they certainly shape the kind of reporting and stories that we tell as journalists. But it's so rare to have an outlet to be able to actually share that with a broader audience, to let them in on what goes on behind the camera, because those, I think, are the moments that make this such a rich uh, and really a job that you would be so lucky to have. It's a privilege. Yeah, you, do, you are indeed very lucky to have your job, although it's a, it's a very dangerous job. And I think one of the things that struck me about your life, and particularly your book, was your bravery, both in, in your lifestyle and perhaps in the way you tell the truth in the book. Um, many, many of our viewers will be familiar with you because of your reporting from Syria, from the Syrian civil war. Uh, you've won a, a series of awards. There's one very poignant moment in the book where you, uh, you meet or you say goodbye to a Syrian family or a, Sy a Syrian person that you're very close to. And their parting request was, please tell the truth about Syria. Very briefly, Clarissa, I know this is a hard truth, mm. but in, in, in a couple of minutes, what is the truth about Syria? The truth about Syria is that men and women of all different backgrounds join together to participate in an uprising that at its core at the beginning was peaceful and was about freedom about building a better future, about imagining a life beyond dictatorship and beyond a police state. And those people were willing to march into a hail of bullets because they thought after seeing what happened in Libya that the international community would have their back. And they thought when they saw the president of the United States saying that Assad must go and saying that chemical weapons were a red line that there would be support for them as they were mercilessly slaughtered. And we're not just talking about killing. We're talking about merciless slaughter. We're talking about torture. We're talking about hospitals targeted, schools targeted, babies killed. We're talking about killing, systematic killing and targeting of civilians on a level I have never seen in my 15 years as a war correspondent. And at a certain point, of course, things turn sour. People become hardened. People become desensitized to violence. Vacuums are created. Extremists come in and exploit those vacuums. And so we did see uh, the uprising take a turn for the ugly. It took a distinctly Islamist hue on. And the world ultimately was not able to help or intervene in any way and that really did much to mitigate the suffering of the Syrian people. And I want to be very clear about something. I, it is not my place as a journalist to advocate for military intervention. However, what I would say is whether or not you believe that intervention was a good idea in Syria, I think you can agree that if you, as Lyndon Johnson once said, if you tell a man to go to hell, you better be sure you can make him go there. If you tell Bashar al-Assad that he's got to go, you've got to be sure that you can make him go. 
And, and that was the great tragedy of Syria because it was the people on the ground who paid the price for that. And your book, I, I read your book anyway, as a, as a very passionate critique of the Obama administration. You said after Obama backed down over his red line comment, Syria was officially a war of no consequences. And you wrote uh, Ben Rhodes, who was uh, Obama's point person on Syria, a very personal email uh, at the end of 2016. You put it in the book. Hope you are sleeping well, you write to Ben. Uh, he's a friend or he was a, he's the brother of your old boss. Hope you're sleeping well as Aleppo burns. Thank goodness we have the Russians to sort it out. There's a lot of anger there, um, Clarissa. Do you think when, yeah. when, when historians look at the, the, the record of the Obama administration, they're going to see Syria as a fundamental fuck up? I don't see. I mean, first of all, I should just say one thing, which is that I don't really regret sending that email, but I crossed a line and I, sh and I shouldn't. Well, you have. shouldn't. Why, why not? Why shouldn't you have crossed the line? Because, I mean, it's not my job as a journalist to prescribe foreign policy. And it's, it just was unprofessional to write that email. And he, didn't, he never I, got back to you, right? So, shockingly, he did not reply to me, no. <laughs> um, but no, I think, I think that Syria will be seen as a stain on the Obama administration. I fully understand absolutely that there were not a lot of good options in Syria. I understand as well that America, it's like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You intervene, uh, you're an occupying force and creating instability. You do nothing to help and you are negligent and leaving people to be slaughtered. So the U.S. does have a kind of impossible role. And I do think that the Obama administration did not have a lot of great options in Syria. That said, what irritates me uh, is that I think later on they tried to kind of recast their Syria policy as being very deliberate and intentional and well thought out when I don't think it was that at all. I think it was a series of... Uh, improvisations in the moment, trying to keep the upper hand, but really being on the back foot. And, you know, forget whether you care about the fact that hundreds of thousands of people were slaughtered by their own leader, because you can argue that that is a, an internal domestic Syrian issue and not the problem of the United States. But let's also be clear that the rise of ISIS and the creation of ISIS, which those of us who were on the ground were seeing from way before the sacking of Mosul, that was, a, that was an absolute byproduct of not just the U.S.'s, but the international community's complete failure to do anything about the Syria problem. There's something rather, I wouldn't say depressing, but rather, well, I guess, bleak about the book uh, in the way you tell the truth. You tell the truth about Syria in a very dark way, as you've just articulated. Uh, and you end the book with a trip to Af Afghanistan in which you confess that you never really found the juice. You're with some uh, Afghani citizens, uh, another interaction with the Taliban. And, and you, you end, you said, I, I understand that in a sense I'd failed in my quest to act as a translator between worlds. There were too many people who didn't want to hear the stories of others, who felt that listening was tantamount to weakness, who believed that humanizing others was dangerous. You're obviously only speaking for yourself, but do you think that the broad Western coverage of the Middle East, of Afghanistan, of Iraq, of Syria, has failed in that context over the last 25 years? I think that 
Well, here's what I would say. I don't think that other journalists necessarily have the same goals that I did or were quite They should do, though. I mean, to, to... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that their goals aren't noble, but mine were quite specific, this idea of acting as a translator and a communicator and shuttling uh, back and forth or straddling different worlds and trying to educate each one about the other. I, I'd like to think that maybe on a on a micro level, I was able to achieve it in some way. But of course, on a macro level, you realize that there are much larger forces at work here. And uh, we are, to a certain extent, as journalists, even with all the best intentions and the greatest of ethics and, and really strong work, we are cogs in, in larger machines. And so do I think that we have failed collectively? No, I won't say that because on the other hand, I would like to think that in years to come, my work and the work of, of so many of my colleagues, which has been brilliant, will be used in tribunals to, uh, to prosecute war criminals in Syria. And I would like to think that the pressure that the press corps began to put on the, uh, the White House under George W. Bush did um, precipitate some serious changes in how they were handling the occupation of Iraq. And so I definitely believe that journalists, broadly speaking, are a force for good and a vital part of any thriving democratic society. And I believe in our in our duty to tell these stories and shine a light on these stories. But what I think is dangerous is when we start to believe that we could change the world. Uh, for me personally, I found it much easier to have humbler goals, which are shine a light on the story. I don't have to solve the problem. I don't have to solve the Syrian war. I don't have to end it. I have to keep telling the story. I have to keep bearing witness and I have to keep giving others a chance for their voice to be heard. You say that you got into journalism after 9-11. I'm quoting you again. You said, while thousands of Americans had signed up for military service after the 9-11 attacks, uh, many others were inspired to find out more about a world that had changed overnight. Uh, that foreignness that you sought out in 2001, of course, led you to Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan and many other uh, parts of the world that most people won't have gone to. Uh, do you think you kind of missed the big story? That had you stayed in America, that foreignness that you were looking for now exists in America. It's in the South, it's in Wisconsin, it's in Pennsylvania, it's with Donald Trump. Do you think, not you personally, but the kind of romantic, idealistic, highly driven, very brave souls like yourself who went to Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, who you write about yourself and others in the book, you may have, perhaps you should have stayed in, in the US or the UK to report on Brexit and Trump. I am so blessed that I do not have to cover politics. And I really would struggle to cover politics for a number of reasons. And I have the utmost respect for my colleagues who are out telling these stories every day because I think it's really challenging. It's really challenging when it's your own country as well. It's but you different. do cover, I, I mean, I, I don't understand when you say you don't cover politics, you, 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 you cover war. So when, when or if or when uh, America breaks down into civil war, that, then you can cover it, then it won't be politics. 
I very much hope that America will not break down into civil war, although I certainly would not completely discount the possibility of it happening at some point, given the current trajectory we're on. Um, and I think I would find it very difficult and painful to, to cover that as well. Um, it's hard to cover your own country. I, I believe that. I really do. Um, and it's hard also to not to be really impartial um, without sort of, you know, while maintaining sort of dignity and retaining your own values. I, I, I think that that's, I think that that's a real, really difficult challenge for someone like me. And so then you're almost forced to kind of pick a side, which is what we, we do as conflict journalists all the time. You kind of have to pick a side, not because, you know, even for just logistical and practical reasons, if I'm covering the rebels, I cannot also be the person to cover uh, the regime of Bashar al-Assad, for example. I, I don't have the access. The regime obviously hates me. Um, so there, there is always that sense of having to kind of cover one side or the other. But I feel like my calling was to act as translators between different worlds. I don't feel like my calling as a journalist was to act as a translator within my own country. That's not to say that it wouldn't happen and it wouldn't be a possibility. But when I say I wouldn't want to cover politics, I'm not really talking about what you're talking about, which is sort of more broadly speaking, I'm talking about being the person in the White House briefing every day, mm. trying to go through, verify fact from fiction. And uh, I think that is an incredibly demanding and hard yeah. job. We had John Carl on the show uh, last week as well, who- uh, Yeah, I love John. He, he's a, well, he was the guy who accused Trump of, of lying. Uh, yeah. You were familiar with Syria before the Civil War. In fact, reading your book, gave me a lot of regret. I've always wanted, I always wanted to go to Damascus and mm. I never went. And of course now it's not only can, one can't go, but it's pretty much been destroyed. Is there anything about pre-Civil War Syria that reminds you of America? No. No. There, I mean, I'm like thinking about it because it's an interesting question I've never been asked before. But no, it's it's very different. I mean, Syria is made up of many different um, uh, many different sects and you had a minority ruling a majority and it was a dictatorship for many years, a police state, uh, brutal repression, torture of political prisoners. Uh, there was an uprising in Hama uh, some decades ago and an estimated 30,000 people were killed in reprisals. No. There, there's nothing that I can think of that would make any kind of obvious parallel between Syria and the U.S., except that I have great love for both. What about the anger, though, not just in Syria, but generally in the Middle East? Uh, a few months ago, we had the geostrategic thinker Ian Bremmer on the show. I'm sure you yeah, know. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Um, and he argues that we've all become Palestinians now and that politics or, or life itself is about throwing rocks, generally without any effect. Is there some truth to that? You, you also begin your book with, with an episode in, in, in Palestine, in the occupied territories. Give me more context as to what he meant. Sorry. Well, meaning that we sort of symbolically throw things because we're so angry, even though we know it, that can't actually change anything. So we go, well, we, we, so to speak, probably not you and I, but many 
many citizens go out on the street to throw their rocks, maybe on social media symbolically, and it's not going to change anything. So we've all become those Palestinian demonstrators on the street who for 40 years have been throwing rocks without any effect. Well, I think that certainly on social media, there is a lot of venting of frustration and there's a lot of what people call virtue signaling now, right? Which is very different than, than, than Palestinians throwing rocks. It's about posturing. It's about showing, oh yes, I am a person who supports this cause, even though I don't actually do anything to support it. But because I have retweeted this or posted this, therefore I'm a supporter of the cause and this is how I identify. Um, and so I think you've seen a real uh, proliferation of that and the way that social media works as well, it sort of magnifies the more angry voices. That said, when you look at this sort of pretty epic social justice movement that is uh, erupting, not just across the US, but has inspired uh, countries around the world, that's not ineffectual. That is, that is very exciting, for lack of a better word, and kinetic, and something that we don't see every day. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't say we're all just Palestinians throwing rocks, no. Reading your book, um, Clarissa, I was really struck by your personal bravery. You, 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 you write about it as if it was just natural, but most people, I was terrified just reading the book, let alone yeah. your situation. Where does that bravery come from? I, 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 I'm guessing that it's not something you gave a lot of thought to, because if you had, you probably wouldn't do what you did. Well, you know, I, I mean, I hope what you see in the book as well is that I'm really not that brave in the sense that, like, I am very frightened a lot of the time and even more frightened than other colleagues who are doing this work. I hate being in a situation where bombs are falling or shells are landing or bullets are flying. It makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. And I actively try to avoid being in uh, what the military call kinetic situations. I want to get as close as I need to go to tell the stories of the people who are, who are shaping the uprising, if it's an uprising, who are living under it or whatever that may be. But I'm not there to provide a blow by blow of military analysis. That's, that's not where my strengths lie. And, and frankly, I'm not brave enough for that. I think that when you fundamentally decide you really want to cover a story, and you know what you need to get to do it, then yes, there is something inside that propels you even against uh, the fear factor in your stomach, which is saying, oh, please, can we go back to uh, London to just see it through? And you try to keep that voice in your head, that voice of calm being like, listen, statistically, you will be very unlucky, even though shelling is is very frightening and psychologically draining, you'd be very unlikely to take a direct hit from a shell. Um, so you, you try to balance the fear that you feel in your stomach with the head, the voice in your head, which is much more rational. Uh, you write in your book about Maria Colvin, a very distinguished female mm. uh, journalist, action journalist, who unfortunately was killed. Uh, you don't write too explicitly about the, the, the female or the feminist aspect of being a war correspondent, but there's some implicit stuff in that. 
for a, a young woman watching this who's thinking to themselves, oh, I'd fancy that kind of career that Clarissa has, would you recommend it for a, for a young woman? I'd recommend it for anyone who has the passion and the fire in their belly because you have to have that. I think we have a tendency to glamorize this profession and actually through Marie's death and, and subsequent books and films that have been made about her, I think we've been given a slightly more accurate picture, a more nuanced picture of, of the toll that this kind of work takes on you, of the challenges that it presents and of some of the taboos that journalists don't really talk about regarding post-traumatic stress disorder. So you have to really want to do this job. And I think you have to have the right motivations and you have to think about what those motivations are. If your motivations are that you're looking to get into some trouble and you like the excitement of being shot at or being near people who are shooting or whatever it may be, then I wouldn't recommend it for you because you're probably going to end up getting in trouble. But if you're motivated by, by something different to that, whatever it may be, I wouldn't want to tell people what their motivations should be. And you have the passion to go the distance. And then I absolutely, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, it's a front row seat on history. It's the greatest job in the world. Well, if you want a front row seat on the front row of history, on all fronts, The Education of a Journalist, Clarissa Ward. It's a wonderful book, uh, very human, very much like the kind of journalism you do. Finally, Clarissa, you're stuck in uh, Notting Hill. I don't know if that's the right word, imprisoned in Notting Hill. Uh, I'm in Berkeley. Most of us aren't going out during this weird mm. uh, COVID year. Everyone should read your book. What else should people be reading? What are you reading or what do you want to read or what have you read that really inspired you? So I just read a book by a good friend of mine, Ramita Navai. It's called City of Lies. It's all about Tehran. It's a series of, of profiles and portraits on people living in Tehran. It's brilliant. It's gripping. It reads like a thriller, not thriller, but like a, a sexy, fascinating, compelling, juicy novel. But it's all actually nonfiction. So, and I'm starting to read Kylie Reed, Such a Fun Age, which um, promises to be a, a great book, which is a novel and which has had a lot of um, a lot of attention and a lot of great reviews. So I'm excited for that. I like to read novels a lot because when your life has a lot of war in it, then it can be nice to escape with fiction. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.